Welcome back, everyone. You're watching We Heart Therapy, the special series EFT Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Anna Belbogati, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified EFT therapist and soon to be certified EFT supervisor. And we have a special edition today. We have both Dr. Scott Woolley and Dr. Rebecca Jorgensen with us today. Um, this is a special edition because uh, Rebecca was my mentor on my dissertation on competing attachments. So uh, Scott has agreed to interview the both of us about this topic and my disserta dissertation research on this. So at that, um, you know, for you, those of you guys who may be on the East Coast aren't as familiar, both Scott and Becca are in San Diego and they run Tri-EFT and they are fabulous, our beloved trainers in EFT and we'll hear more about their specialties and their websites later. But that, Scott, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Sure, absolutely. I'm excited about this. Um, I, this is the first time I've been the interviewer rather than in, the interviewee. And this is an exciting topic. So really would like to start out talking about or asking about how you came up with this idea of competing attachments and decided to do it for a dissertation. Well, so what's really interesting is I was sitting in my core skills training a couple of years ago, whenever that was, it seems like so long ago, um, and you guys were talking a little bit about counterfeit attachments and turning away, and I was already sort of centering on this dynamic. Uh, it's funny, when, when your dissertation advisors talk to you about picking your topic, they often say that people will find topics that feel like they kind of speak personally to the, the student. And so, you know, I was interested on some, you know, something I'd experienced in my past relationships where I had dated um, some guys that turned to their mothers for their input, their their emotion, sharing their emotions and stuff that they weren't sharing with me, which felt very hurtful. And I did feel a sense of competition. And I was sort of drifting into this weird, like, how do I find this theoretically? What does this dynamic look like? And I was talking to Becca about it, picking her brain. She said, oh, you're describing competing attachment. And I was like, ah! <laughs> so, you know, and, and Becca and I, you know, looked through the research and we found that there wasn't an actual tangible academic definition in the academic realm in all the EFT literature you guys have published it but there wasn't uh, cl anything clinically defined in the ac academic realm so Becca was just brilliant in helping me with this and you know said hey this could be a good thing to do <laughs> put it down on the books I don't know Becca what do you remember of this <laughs> Yeah, I remember, um, you know, I guess several conversations, probably not just from that particular conversation, but other core skills or earlier times, perhaps, where you were looking, you know, struggling around, there was some, you know, it evolved from the Cinderella. Mm -hmm. the, do you remember that with the, yeah, I can't remember the like term this, you used? Yeah, or the, the, um, the mama's boys thing. Yeah, the mama boys um, complex, you know, we're mm -hmm. kind of struggling around different things. And yeah, so this one core skills I was talking about counterfeit attachments and partners that turn away and look, you know, rely outside of the relationship on other things mm -hmm. and their ways of coping. 
-hmm. and that this is a this competes the partner experiences the pursuing partner usually experiences that as competing or mm -hmm. they're in competition for their time for their attention for their resources for their love you know mm -hmm. um and that kind of sparked the idea i've been writing and you know talking about those concepts for a long time but um, and only there wasn't anything, you know, that we could find that had any real definition to it or um, any research behind it. So okay. that became a great topic. Yeah, That's that was the struggle to come up with something original and groundbreaking, but interesting enough that you want to follow it all the way through, you know, because it becomes your baby. And, you know, when, when Becca, when you talked about the, the hurt that the partners would experience when these counterfeited attachments would find their way into the relationship just felt so validating and I just felt like this relief come over me and you know at that time I was still sort of a newer therapist and I knew that this was also familiar to some of what I heard my my couples talk about and it's like oh maybe there's something here <laughs> yeah that's great that's great so it just for the listeners, I'm interested in what, how you did end up defining it for your study. And then what did your study, what did you learn from your study? So you know? Becca and I worked, we had several passes at this and we had a little bit of input from a psychometrician from UCLA, Dr. Rory Reed, which I believe he's published with you, Scott, as well on affairs. Yep. So he's been very familiar to both of you guys, and, and he was at Becca's suggestion. Um, trying to find a way that you could identify it in a way that could kind of synthesize or capture what was happening, but create sort of a tangible or measurable definition. So we had several passes back and forth, and... Becca, I'll let you share the definition that we came up with, if you remember, because you, you just have a beautiful way of stating it. But um, we also uh, created the competing attachment scale with it. So it's a little five question uh, questionnaire that asks people. And it's really, a, I think, more reports on the partner's experience of competing attachment. What is it like for you? How Basically, in, in five questions, how distressing is this to you? Um, yeah. So yeah, Becca, I'll let you know. Oh, you know, it's um, my husband, Max is a farmer and sometimes he'll describe a tool or something. I'll say, what's the name of that? It's a big, big equipment, some sort of big machinery. And he says, well, the name of it is just what it does. You know, like that's a rower. It makes rows, you know? So really the competing attachment scale, like it, what the definition is, is the experience of being in competition with um, the partner's focus, you know, not being able to get the partner's focus or have your needs met, having your needs compromised um, and feeling in that sense of competition. Yeah. yeah, so like when one partner might turn out to, so the, the definition, the more expanded definition would include you know, anything a partner turns out to, or the act of turning out in a way to something else, instead of your romantic partner, something that's outside of the relationship could be pornography, affairs, alcohol, work, um, rival relationships. 
Um, other gaming. activities, you know, hiking, yes. sports, mm -hmm. things that... Gaming. Yeah, gaming, anything that we might get particularly involved in at the exclusion of a partner and could be a coping or just could be something that, you know, one partner really enjoys. And then the partner who experiences it as in competition for their attachment security, for their attachment. Yeah. yeah. Great. And I think right. that's sort of important. To, if we could talk a little more about that is when when people, so just like anything else, people say, well, how does this become different from a hobby versus a competing attachment? And when you're talking about anything that's clinically diagnosable or accessible, it's just like anything else, when it starts to cause distress or impede functioning, right? So, you know, when in our relational dynamics, what we're seeing with couples is where you know, yes, maybe something started out very innocently as like a hobby or something, but then somewhere along the line, it crossed over a threshold from just this is an activity I do sometimes for fun to now I'm turning to it a little bit more frequently. It's becoming a haven away from my marriage or marital distress or and I'm turning it to self-soothe or comfort rather than to turning to my partner and my partner is expressing distress like hey, I'm feeling neglected, or I really, you know, want your attention or your love, and they're sending out that distress signal, but their partner isn't tuning, isn't turning and seeing them or tuning into their distress signal as this is problematic, and you might see them sort of dig in and say, well, there's nothing wrong with me doing this or going out with the guys every week and, you know, whatever. And so they tend to hang on and get defensive about the competing attachment, which can drive it in deeper with the other partner's distress. Right, okay. Okay, so that's, that's helpful. Um, and you did a dissertation on this. You came up with this scale and you did your dissertation on it. What did you learn in your dissertation? I think the coolest thing that I learned was when I started splitting apart and researching the different types of competing attachment. And it just, I could have gone on forever with that because literally there, you know, there are an, a lot of possibilities, but you know, when you're writing a, a research paper, you have to write about things that you can back up with research. And I think what I was most surprised about is that Work is a common competing attachment that I see come up, but yet there is not a lot of attachment research on turning to work as like a substitute attachment, but there is a lot of attachment research on affairs. Um, there's even some writing on rival relationships. And what was interesting is there's some cultures where they value, um, like, you know, in my case, what it originally inspired me was the mama's boys dynamic where this would be where a son may bypass his wife or the male child would bypass his wife turning to her for her opinion or her comfort her emotional validation and going right to mom and continually turning to mom even though he's married and there are cultures out there where the mother-son dynamic is honored more than in other cultures like it's a very very strong alliance and it's culturally honored in that way but even in those cultures there were research articles about how the wives were describing feelings of competing attachment and i thought that was so neat and i think the biggest thing that came up was like you know sue always talks about how Attachment is wired into our survival instincts. 
And I found someone else's dissertation research where they highlighted through evolutionary psychology. So I found all these different schools of counseling and psychology that were culminating the little bits and pieces that were building this base for competing attachment, some uh, empirical validation for it. And so this girl's dissertation research found that we're literally wired to detect those threats to our attachment system the exact same way that we're wired to detect threats to our physical safety. And that was really cool because, you know, when you have experienced a competing attachment or you perceive a competing attachment, just like any other danger cue in the marriage, you become a little more, your antenna tunes into it a little bit more, right? So, um, you know, scanning that environment constantly to pick up that, is there a competing attachment here, <laughs> you know? But I think it was really exciting to see pieces come out of evolutionary psychology, supporting attachment, that, you know, there's just a lot of empirical support building this foundation for this dynamic that exists. And even consumer research, I found stuff in consumer research, in consumer psychology that said, <laughs> in fact, and, and it's, it crosses over into evolutionary psychology that people will actually go and buy, like women in particular in one study said that women will go out and buy expensive products and clothing as a way to, almost like a way to protect themselves from competing attachment to like a, like a peacock. I got to puff myself big so that you don't come near my man, right? Because he, he takes care of me because I'm so well-groomed with all these nice things, right? Which I found fascinating. <laughs> so I just learned all these really neat tidbits. Um, yeah. But the types of competing attachment I did cover in my dissertation were affairs, addiction, um, such as pornography, alcohol, um, gaming was a big one. And there's a lot of research. They actually have three terms that came out of that. So you have technoference, which is technology interfering in your relationship. Fubbing, which is partner phone snubbing, where you turn to your phone instead of your partner and gaming widows, which describes something very sad about the competing attachment with, you know, people whose spouses are into World of Warcraft, for example, some of those things where they'll spend hours and hours and they feel like widows in a way. <laughs> and, and gaming has become the first, you know, their first wife, right? And, um, and then I covered cell phones which is kind of a new hot topic because cell phones facilitate several kinds of competing attachment in addition to being its own competing attachment, like social media, turning to other people. You see this more often, turning to social media, Facebook, Instagram for other people's validation and their opinions. Oh yeah, you look amazing today versus turning to my spouse and, and getting their validation and feeling like that's enough, you know? Mm -hmm. So I covered those and rival relationships. Um, I think that's all that I covered. Um, those are all the ones I can find uh, empirical uh, literary research support for. Okay. Right. So you did this kind of survey and found out and kind of really took them down into categories, these mm -hmm. categories of, and it sounds like some of them involve turning to other people, like mm -hmm. having an affair, 
Some of them involve maybe turning to addictions, you know, processes, those kinds of things, um, et cetera. Did you find, and maybe there isn't a lot out here on this, but did you find that the type of, you know, the type of competing attachment made a difference for uh, in treatment with couples? Well, that I could answer more of uh, clinically rather than research-wise, because we didn't, we, because the nature of research and developing assessment tools, as, as Becca mentioned, you know, developing these tools to capture these dynamics can be really complex. So we didn't, and hopefully we'll be expanding our measure one day or, or someone else out there with a, who wants to do an EFT dissertation can take this study and, and add to it, but so it's more like it, it was more like your output then was the measurement tool itself. Well, yeah, that was and, the, and what the tool is, you know, what Annabelle found in her general research to support the development of the tool and the tool is kind of the things that she's describing that uh, a counterfeit attachment that someone may go towards. The scale itself is from the partner's experience of being left. Ah. And, and we didn't put in like, no, it's not, if you have not this getting kind of... it from the experience of the person who's turning away, they don't necessarily experience themselves as turning away. Maybe they got together and I already was an avid hiker, I already mm -hmm. was working. And you know, mm -hmm. that's when we got together, you already knew that. So I don't experience it. I'm as a partner, I might not experience it right. as mm -hmm. um, it does, it's not competing to me, you know, in the relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So that may yeah. be a counterfeit attachment. I may be attaching to something else outside of the relationship. But so this competing attachment is really from the partner's experience of being left and how much distress that causes to them. Mm -hmm. And we didn't, and we were measuring distress, not so much what kinds of things their partner was turning away giving their time and attention to. Okay. Right. Like, you know, a future research study would be great to examine, to maybe to have a drop down box on the scale, do a revised version of the scale that says, what type of competing attachment do you experience in your relationship? Or are there multiple ones and have them correlate a level of distress which each with each type. But this, the, this was just the first stage of development of this tool, and really we had to develop it because there was nothing out there literally that could capture this dynamic. So we had to create it, and we, we captured more of a broad strokes. We just wanted to capture the presence of competing attachment and some level of how that impacts the relationship, mostly the security of the bond and the level of satisfaction. So um, in the clinical practice, I'm sure both of you guys could talk to this as well, but you know, affairs tend to be more recognized, like the distress seems to be a lot more obvious and really intense versus others might take a longer time to build, you know, so like cell phones may not start off as a competing attachment or video game systems, but they may develop over time and it may be more of a, um, a, you know, a build up to that level of distress versus affairs, you know, in a lot of cases, not all of them, but a lot of them immediately, it's, you know, and, and I like, you know, you mentioned turning out to people because affairs, turning out to people isn't always affairs. You have people who 
turn to their best friends um, continually to share their secrets that they're not sharing to their spouse or they're turning to family members or they have coworkers of, you know, the same sex as their partner. And, and some spouses mind that, right? Mm -hmm. Some yes. spouses mind that and they're going to experience that as competition and some mm -hmm. spouses don't, right? So yeah. from my, from my, as the spouse experience, do I experience that turning away? as competing with the attachment that I want to have, with the time and attention and care that I want to have. And that's what the scale was really, you know, designed to look at. Right. And, and it seems to me like this has got lots and lots of relevance for the work that we do in therapy. And I guess I'm curious, I can think of a number of things, but you two are the experts on this. And so I'm curious about, from your perspective as a therapist, how does this concept of a competing attachment, how might even the scale um, it be useful? Maybe it was primarily developed for research, but how can it be useful or even the concept be useful for us as clinicians in therapy? Well, so one of the, okay, one of the, uh, you know, findings, the really, a phenomenal finding is that by the level of distress of the partner that satisfaction and security are both impacted we you know it's correlational we don't know what's what you know but we used to just look at relationship satisfaction um, and attachment security and the level you know those levels would give us a sense of how distressed the couple was but we add the competing attachment there and just by its by taking this five part, mm -hmm. this five uh, questions itself, um, we can go directly to the attachment, uh, mm -hmm. it, to the threat, the level of distress in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So it combines and correlates really highly with both satisfaction in the relationship mm -hmm. and attachment security, right? Yes. So that really helps us in the sense of uh, you know, just working on the negative cycle and knowing the level of threat. If I can take that one partner who's experiencing, I'm in competition with my partner's job, with my partner's phone, whatever. I'm in, I'm in competition with that and their level of distress. Like we, that makes, uh, that can organize really how, um, how upset they are, how distressed they are. And and it gives us a way to talk to the partner who turns away, who ex doesn't experience it mm -hmm. as problematic. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's problematic because your partner's in high distress. And yeah, it maybe you don't feel it blocks you from being close to your partner, but they're in really high distress. And, um, and that gives us kind of a way to look at both, that it impacts both security and satisfaction and you want your partner to be satisfied you know that there's a way that that needs to balance out and i think to piggyback on that too so of course in the in the dissertation you have to prove that this is important or i, I don't know i guess we're not allowed to say the word prove in research because nothing proves anything but you have to show some type of an association that this is right. problematic in some way and so you know, knowing that clinically we have people who show up into our therapy room that are describing competing attachment and they're talking about distress, you know, so in my dissertation model, I had to study the relationship between competing attachment 
the definition of the attachment bond as secure or insecure and satisfaction relationship. And let me just quickly segue to the thing about the attachment bond is because you can have two people in, with insecure attachment strategies that can get right. together and create a secure attachment bond. Right. So this is the definition of the bond, whether or not the bond is secure. And as Becca, you know, mentioned, you know, it's relational, it's systemic, right? We don't quite know if it's the chicken or the egg and really they occur at the same time. Does somebody engage in competing attachment because they don't have secure attachment or are they sensitive to it because they don't have secure attachment or does secure attachment impact the security, which of course, whether or not, you know, the insecurity impacted the competing attachment or vice versa, when you have the presence of competing attachment, it has shown that the security, the definition of the bond as secure goes down and so does satisfaction. And when security and satisfaction are down, you have all kinds of problems. But this is really important for therapists conceptually to understand because prior to my study, we had all these bits and pieces of what was, what you know, what they were describing as competing attachment. But what we did in my dissertation was we rounded them all up and conceptualized them under the umbrella of attachment. So they were all little dangling pieces out there, not really organized, though there was a lot of attachment research, they weren't really organized and synthesized through the attachment lens. So when a therapist who maybe wasn't an attachment therapist or didn't really know what they're looking at, they may have someone come in with competing attachment, they be, may be quick to diminish the partner's distress as, oh, you just need to get more comfortable with them participating in their hobby, or, or why is video games a big problem, or, or, you know, we need to help you be more comfortable with your partner turning to his mom for her approval more than yours. So they might completely miss what's right in front of them and that's the you know hallmark of understanding the competing attachment so that therapists can see exactly what they're looking at when it's presented to them and know what to do with it. Mm. It's so great for assessment, really, right? To hone into the partner's distress around the other partners looking, how they're turning away, what they're turning away to, that we can really hone into that level of distress uh, that they experience that as competition for love, time, attention, it impacts their security, that they uh, feel that their partner turns to these other things um, instead of to them to have their needs met outside of the relationship and that they feel like they're losing their time and attention and they feel hurt by it, right? I actually feel hurt when my partner goes hiking or does that thing. Um, and that I believe that it affects that it affects my bond with my partner. So those are you know we can really hone into that. It's a great assessment tool um, for as Annabelle was saying to really um, pay attention. That it doesn't really matter, um, you know, as a therapist, that we're not in the place of judging as you know, is it reasonable or not for the partner to be talking to the mom or not. Is it causing this partner distress and do they feel significantly left out and in distress about whatever that is that we really need to pay attention to it because relationship satisfaction 
is going to impact the other partner where they think whether they think they're engaging in a counterfeit attachment or not that their partner is in distress impacts the system impacts the relationship right and it will affect their attachment security because that's mm -hmm. a com combination mm -hmm. uh, attachment security is developed by both of them right absolutely yeah. i love how you say that becca and what i was going to say too is that so when couples come in presenting a competing attachment and sometimes you may have to assess is there a competing attachment based on you'll get hints of distress they'll say something like whenever my partner does this or or this person seems to be a trigger in our relationship this outside person or this outside thing then you know okay there might be a competing attachment let me hone in on that and there's two ways you can go in this through the model is you know okay maybe one person isn't intentionally turning to a competing attachment, but the partner's still experiencing distress. Maybe they came in with insecure attachment and they're having problems, you know, feeling secure, but it's getting reinforced with their lack of, their partner's lack of emotional responsiveness when their partner puts the distress call out, right? Not turning to them and reassuring them and saying, okay, sweetie, how do I help you feel safe and comfortable? You know, do I need to not do this this week or whatever, you know, just really tuning in and being with their partner, which usually isn't happening. Or, you know, are they turning out in a way where they're actually turning out in a way and they're also not really seeing themselves as turning away from their partner and not acknowledging that. And we need to make, you know, bring those into the cycle and build those into the cycle, the competing attachments, part of that work and understanding, mapping the distress, right? You let the distress do the talking. Oh, okay, now that's, help. that's very helpful. So regardless of what kind of type it is, whether it's gaming or work or, you know, a best friend or whatever, right? The issue really is the amount of distress because it is seen as a competing attachment. So, um, and it's experienced, it is a threat. And so a lot of times I think we all know, for example, an affair is gonna be a competing attachment, that kind of a thing, alcohol, whatever, but it is, but it doesn't really matter as much as to what type from the perspective of the other person, what matters is how much of a threat it is. And that, that I could feel sad, I could feel frustrated, I'm in pain, I feel disconnected, and basically, you know, you, again, as we know in the negative cycle, like, so you don't really care about it, and that increases my distress. That is so helpful. So what- And also, sorry, Scott, if I can jump in too, what I was gonna say, you know, you're saying something helpful is that I find that out of competing attachments, it's usually affairs will be the number one thing that at least brings people out of the competing attachment that'll bring somebody into therapy, bring a couple in. Alcohol, I would say, is probably number two, unless they're going to addiction specialist. The other types of competing attachment are usually not going to, they are causing distress, but I notice a lot of people even try to diminish or, you know, dismiss their own distress. Like, oh, I should just get over it. It's not, you know, they don't see it's it as reasonable for me to feel right. jealous right. of this yes. thing or that thing. It's unreasonable yes. for me to not like my partner's pornography use. Like, yes, you know, so they'll give you a hint, but they don't necessarily, yeah. they're, they're ashamed of their distress around it. 
That's right. That's right. So it may just build and build and then it's the other outlying emotional distress in the relationship that'll bring them in. And then you'll find subsequently that there's competing attachments versus them coming in for because of an, of an affair or an addiction. Okay. No, that's very helpful. So if I'm working with a couple and it is something like, I don't know, golf or whatever, some, something that you wouldn't necessarily see as a major competing attachment. But, but golf is very uh, threatening for someone. How, and of course the person, and they get caught at the content level. Hey, you know, I don't golf that often. I only do it three times a week, or this is a really important part of my life. You knew this when you got together with me. Um, they get caught at that content level how can we help the person who may be engaging behaviors that the other person finds as a threat, competing attachment, how do we help that person be able to see that um, he or she is engaging in something that it's not about the reasonableness of going golfing. It's not what it's about. It is about the threat that it represents. How do we do that? Well, and Becca, you'll, you'll add to this probably a lot more, but I know for me, what I do with couples is um, I talk, uh, you know, again, we let the distress do the talking, but um, a lot of it is painted through the A-R-E, the accessibility response of an engage when your partner sends a distress signal. I, I kind of like to say it's the bat signal, you know, it goes into the sky. And do you see the bat signal going off? How do you turn and respond to your partner? You know, and if the partner is feeling soothed, you know, if they're feeling like their partner's tuning into their distress and emotionally responsive and engaged, chances are that the golfing probably isn't going to be that big of a deal. But in a lot of these cases, you don't see the partner doing this, right? And they get defensive and start to stick, you know, stick in, dig into their position. And that only drives in the threat rather than helping their partner feel reassured. And... I kind of talk about balance. Usually you find when there's a complaint of a competing attachment or distress is that they're often not engaging in really strong connection, emotional connection in other ways. And so this feels more of a deficit than if they were connecting emotionally, like if they had quality bonding time during the week, then the time this, you know, maybe the partner wants to go an extra couple times this week, it's probably not going to be a big deal. But 99.99% of the time with my own couples, what I found is that they're missing out on that connection in other ways. So that competing attachment starts to stick out like a sore thumb. And when I can teach them to be emotionally accessible, responsive, and engaged, and connect to more quality bonding, then that hobby truly becomes thought of by both partners as the hobby and not as the competing attachment. That threat gets neutralized. Becca, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we go through the process of EFT, right, where we're looking at what blocks responsiveness, why, why that threat um, increases the distress. We look, put it into the negative cycle, right, that, that the partner going to do, engage in their activity, um, what that signals to the partner who feels in competition with, um, and then how they cope with that, of course, the impact that that has and either coming closer together or farther away. 
And so the ARE is also very nice, their accessibility, responsiveness, engagement. Are they able to kind of come together and pull, pull together to overcome and, um, you know, develop their closeness and support for each other around those things? So when attachment security increases and the, you know, the attachment bond becomes more secure and satisfaction increases, then many couples, in my experience, it's like um, Annabelle said, it's not the thing. You know, many times it's not that. I, I might just engage in golf just as ever bit as much as I did before. I may not, but it's, it becomes that it's not a threat anymore if we have that security of the bond um, and responsiveness towards each other. So, you know, we found EFT very effective treatment for these kinds of things. I think really the benefit most for me is that honing in to the, the distressed partner who's saying this is a problem for me to really be able to listen, to pay attention, because no matter what it is that they're saying is the problem for me, if their partner's not hearing them, I need to hear them as the therapist. I don't want to dismiss them, um, ignore it, just you know, diminish the importance of how they experience it as a threat um, so that we can organize what happens when that trigger comes into their relationship and how each one of them respond um, to each other in relation to that. I like that, Beck. I kind of hear you saying, you know, maybe one of the assessment questions that a therapist can help them stay curious and empathic and not dismiss the partner's distress would be how did X, Y, or Z become a threat in this relationship? Yeah. Yeah. How did it become? Why is it? What, what about it is that, you know, where do you get stuck here? What happens when you're really upset and, you know, or you tried to talk to your partner about having more time and attention or needing, you know, more contact, what happens there? So we look at the way that they get blocked and, and if the partner who is in, engaging outside of the relationship is responsive to that or not, right? The sure. more responsive they are, the less, of course we know, you know, the more secure couples are together, the more independent they can become. And so as they develop that security, there may be, um, you know, the same kind of level of engagement in what they were doing before, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a threat. Now, of course, some things will always be a threat um, significantly, like we talked about the affairs, but I think we're talking about paying attention to these places where a partner feels particularly insecure and um, may or may not validate their own threat of jealousy or competition to what their partner is paying the time and attention to or giving their investment of energy towards um, so that we can really um, so we can really look at as a system and how that distress impacts the system. It's interesting. Okay, yeah, no, that, that's great. So I, I think part of what I'm hearing then is, is that one of the things we as clinicians need to do is really look at why it's a threat and make that threat about the importance of the relationship. Yeah the importance of the person who may be engaging behaviors that are seen as a competing uh, uh, attachment and um, get off of the content itself, mm -hmm. but then put that in the context of the negative cycle, right? Yeah. 
Like, how do they cope with this when it presents itself at home, especially for those those other types of competing attachments that don't pop out as as brightly as affairs or addictions, but like the hobbies, you know, and that example is with any other content issue, how do couples get stuck dealing with this at home? You know, is there that responsiveness and engagement? Most often not. And that's part of what starts to drive in the cycles when I'm sharing my distress signal with my partner and they're not tuning in, they're not engaging with me, they're not comforting or reassuring me. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like what we end up doing is we, the person who's experiencing a competing attachment with their partner, they're having to compete with something for their partner right. and that's the way they experience it. Um, what we need to do with them is we validate the fears of losing the other person and we make those fears of losing the other person the primary issue, not necessarily the competing attachment, although in some that are very destructive in and of themselves, like getting addicted to alcohol or what a porn or whatever, you know, that, that really tended to, to numb people out um, or affairs. The, um, but instead, kind of not making it about those things, really making it about creating security. That's beautiful. Very nice. And this, and this, um, uh, the, the scale sounds like it's something that really could be, it's only five questions, and it could be something that could be easily used by clinicians to get a sense of kind of where people are. Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful questions too, you know, really dialed into it. Like, do you experience a sense of competition or rivalry with activities or relationships that your partner engages with? Mm. Do you see your partner as turning elsewhere to have their needs met rather than turning to you? Do you feel hurt by this sense of competing for significance in your relationship with your partner? How often do you believe that competing for attachment significantly negatively affects your ability to have a healthy bond? You know, so it really cones into both satisfaction and security and, and the level of distress because it is on a Likert scale. So if I wanted to use the scale in my, um, in my practice, you know, where would I get it? How do I, how do I start using it? Right now, you probably have to email either Becca or myself to, to distribute it. Maybe Becca, you can, since you guys are connected to ISEF, we can find a way to make it available to folks. But if you do teach at a university or you're a student and have access to a university library, you can catch it in the um, dissertation database. It's the measures attached to my dissertation. Um, yeah, the questions, I, the questions I just gave to you or just kind mm -hmm. of read to you are ones that we published in the ISEF newsletter mm -hmm. that were based on the scale, you know, oh. so you can, you can get the flavor of what, mm -hmm. what you're asking and use those questions or write some questions or, you know, get mm -hmm. the actual scale questions. Mm -hmm. um, but that sense of we're looking for the sense of competition or rivalry, the seeing the partner turn, not just turn away from you, but actually turn the experiences. My partner's turning towards something else. They're not just turning away from me, right? So there's an added element of what they experience as inavailability of their partner. You know, it's not like you just blank out or you tune out or you're not paying attention to me. You're actually putting your energy, your resources, your time, your attention towards something else that leaves me out. You know, that's really, and it leaves me hurt. I, and I feel jealous and insecure around that, right? 
Yeah. And so that's the flavor of the things that you're, you want to ask, you want to get a sense of um, from, from your partners. So yeah, you can email, you know, Annabelle or me or it is available in the dissertation or turn to your ICEP newsletter, <laughs> issue yeah. 40, and um, read a summary about it. Now, both of you guys, you know, as we wind down here, both of you guys have written about competing attachments in some way or another. Scott, you published about affairs and you are one of our experts on affairs. Um, and I'm sure you guys are available for supervision, for training. If folks want to learn more about this dynamic, how to handle it clinically, where can the community find you guys or contact you guys get your material, schedule you to come out and give a training on it? Well, um, I think probably both the TriEFT website <clears throat> can be helpful and also our personal websites, which for me is drscottwoolley.com. And Becca? Yep, and I'm at drrebeccajorgensen.com. Perfect. And you guys are available. I know, Becca, you do like a supervision group for therapists, right? Mm -hmm. And if folks are needing like a case consultation, they have competing attachment in their practice and they need uh, an expert eye on it, you, they could get in touch with you guys and you could help them with that. Yep, certainly. Um, we have lots of materials. We have, I have supervision groups online as well as courses online and um, a private Facebook, free Facebook group um, available for people to come in and be able to ask questions and discuss EFT issues. Mm -hmm. yeah, we try to help people to, to learn how to help couples. Yeah. And what's your Facebook group, Becca? Emotionally Focused Therapy. It's the group, Emotionally Focused Therapy. Um, and then I also have a, a website called Building a Lasting Connection that is helping um, couples more specifically work on their relationships and um, provide some systems, systematic tools for processing emotion. Excellent. So guys, if you haven't joined Becca's Facebook group, it's an excellent resource. The pleasure being in the group and there are EFTers literally all over the globe in that group. So it's an, it's an excellent way to connect with Becca as well. And she's constantly posting resources. So make sure that you plug into that. And, and Scott, now you've written extensively about affairs and you've published quite a few articles. Um, and folks, there are lots of folks that are hungry and curious about research. Where can they find access to your publications? Well, they're in various places. So they're not just in one place, you know. Um, I think they may be, some of them may be on the ICEP website. I probably need to do a better job of getting them up on my own website. Yeah. Um, but I do do a fair amount of workshops on, uh, on healing affairs using EFT. Um, most of those are in Europe, actually, not in the United States. But I know that we're planning on doing one in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just after the first of the year, which is going to be totally fun. And... Mm -hmm. um, so those are, those are ways. And if folks want to book you to come to their area, guys, well, all of our trainers would love to come do their training in your area. So if you feel like you've got the demand and you can fill a classroom with therapists eager to learn about affairs or competing attachment or other EFT topics, 
Becca and Scott are definitely, you know, of course, subject to availability, but just send them a message. They're very accessible and responsive and engaged. <laughs> and you reach out to them. I'm sure they'd love to work with you on scheduling something in your area. So absolutely. And affairs is a hot topic, guys. And, you know, it's definitely a big thing in Las Vegas. I feel like it's a little special, but as we know, affairs happens everywhere. So, you know. Um, look both of them up. I encourage you to find their materials. You can Google search them, join Becca's group, their websites, which I will put links to their websites in the description for this video. And, you know, Becca and I have done a couple other videos for the series, so make sure you check those out. Scott and I have also done a couple videos, and we have another one releasing soon about stage two, but we've done a couple on affairs and Becca has one that people rave about on shame and she has this shame workshop and training so guys we have two beloved trainers here that just have a wealth of knowledge that are ready to share with you guys so please make use of their resources and as always guys thank you so much for your support and watching this series and this channel and make sure you hit subscribe because more videos are on the way <laughs> Thank you.